The sermon today is taken from Romans 13, verse 1 to 7. This is the word of God. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And thus says the Lord. There's a famous scene in the Gospels where Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees who were desperately trying to undermine his ministry. And so they came up with this devious plan to trap him and silence him for good. You see, the religious leaders were well aware of the tensions that existed between Rome and the nation of Israel at that time. The Jews hated the fact that they were subject to such an impressive, pagan government. So many of them were struggling with the issue of how to be faithful to God in such an impressive, irreligious environment. And the Pharisees took advantage of this situation and tried to trap Jesus in front of the people by bringing him a denarius and asking him if it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. Now, a denarius was a silver coin that was used to pay taxes to Rome, but it also had an image of Caesar on it with a small inscription that read, referred to Caesar as divine, as if he was a god. And so from their perspective, they've got Jesus in a possible predicament, right? It's a catch-22. If he says no, the religious leaders will charge him with treason against Rome for failing to pay taxes. On the other hand, if he says yes, then they would accuse him of disobeying God and violating the second commandment against idolatry which will cause the people to be upset with him and ruin the credibility of his ministry. So in verse 18, we're told just how Jesus then responded to them. And he said to them, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. In other words, give the coin to Caesar, but give your hearts and souls to God. And when they heard this, they marveled. They left him and went away. One commentator says, in the answer of Jesus, God was glorified, Caesar was satisfied, the people who heard it were edified, and his critics were stupefied. Now, interestingly, Right here in this story, we see that when Jesus was faced with the question of how to be faithful to God 
and be subject to human authority. His answer suggested that it was possible for Christians to do both. That is, it's possible for us to honor God and be subject to civil authority at the very same time. It's possible for Christians to do both, with one exception, of course, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But what I would like for us to understand is that during his brief time on earth, Jesus lived his life under both divine and human authority. And although he was the king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus lived his life in obedience to civil government. And that's what we're going to discuss in our passage today, because Paul gives us some practical wisdom on how to understand our responsibility as Christians to civil authority. And he basically gives us three reasons why Christians should be subject to government. Three reasons that we should be subject to government. First, we should be subject to government because government is ordained by God, verse 1. Second, we should be subject to government because of the fear of judgment, verses 2 through 4. And then third, we should be subject to government for consciousness' sake, verses 5 through 7. First, we should be subject to government because government is ordained by God, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now, the phrase every person here at the beginning of our passage refers to all mankind in general, right? Christians and non-Christians alike. And so we're all commanded as human beings to be subject to the governing authorities. And the authorities that are in view here are civil institutions where legitimate authority is being exercised. And this includes the home, the workplace, and various civil and political institutions as well. And the command for us to be to submit not only includes our outward obedience as Christians, but also implies that we have a proper attitude of, of obedience towards those who are our superiors as well. Now, immediately, I hear an objection. You say, wait a minute. You don't know how bad my situation is at work, right? My boss is not only an impossible person to get along with, but he also has absolutely no idea how to treat people either. He's a terrible person who purposely, purposely makes life difficult for everyone but himself at work. And besides all of that, he's not even a Christian. You should hear some, some of the language that he uses at work. Is Paul really telling me to submit to him, to that kind of person? Well, before I answer that, I, I want to begin by acknowledging that this is a very difficult passage for many reasons. Because we all know how hard it is for us as Christians to submit to somebody who we do not respect or to submit in an environment where we feel like we're, we're taken advantage of and we're not even being heard as people. And I also want to acknowledge how this passage might cause anxiety for some of you who've personally experienced corruption and the abuse of power here in Indonesia. Perhaps you've even had this passage uh, misused by those who are in power, who have the political and financial authority to keep people in their place and keep them quiet in the midst of oppression. If that's been your experience, I want to empathize with you and just affirm that those who misuse and distort Bible passages for their own benefit most certainly have to answer to God for that. I'm somewhat familiar with that because in the past in America, uh, there were some who also used Bible uh, passages to justify the slavery of African-Americans. 
to keep us in our place as well and to keep us from demanding our freedoms as human beings. And that's certainly not right. But even knowing all that, knowing that there's racism, bigotry, and the abuse of civil and political authority in the world, Paul is telling us to respect the position of authority that a person has over us, even if we might not like the person or agree with their policies. Now, as hard as that may be, I really believe that it makes life easier for us as Christians in the long run if we love our enemies and treat them with respect. I truly believe that you can kill a person's hostility with kindness. Proverbs 15, chapter, uh, verse 1, a kind answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You know, I mentioned racism in America, and I can't tell you how frustrating it is for me personally, as an African-American man, to see video clips of my brothers and sisters in the States being rude, disrespectful, and outright hostile to white police officers who pull them over when driving. You see, out of their frustration against racism, they just assume that a police officer is racist without even knowing him as a person. And being disrespectful to an officer's authority just provokes him and he responds negatively. And that just further escalates the situation. And then when that officer responds negatively, that just reaffirms that person's belief that he was racist all along. So an innocent traffic stop turns into something that could probably have been avoided if the officer's authority was respected and had been given the proper respect that it deserves. And as a black man who's driven all across America for over 20 years, I've personally never had a situation with a white police officer escalate to where violence had to be used, even though I've been pulled over on several occasions. Why? Because thank God I learned a long time ago to respect authority. As Christians, when we treat people with honor and respect, our hope is that it could possibly lead, even lead to an opportunity to share the gospel with that person. And it's important for us to remember, I think that Paul is writing this letter to Christians who lived in Rome under the reign and rule of the evil Emperor Nero, who was notorious not only for his cruel and unfair treatment of Christians, but also for his very cruel and unfair treatment of his own people as well. And so Paul was definitely aware of how hard it was for Christians to be submissive in a hostile and difficult environment. But notice in the second half of verse one, Paul uses, he gives us the reason that we're commanded to be subject to the governing authorities. There he says, there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Wow, what an amazing statement. You see, Paul is making the argument for our submission as Christians to authority. He's making that solely based on the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. He possesses ultimate authority over all of creation, and all human authority has therefore been delegated to them by God. You remember Jesus' words to Pontius Pilate, who was at that time the Roman governor over the province of Judea, how Jesus said to him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above, that is, from God. 
And we know that Pilate was an extremely cruel and heartless person. And yet Jesus himself acknowledges that Pilate's power and authority came from God. God gave it to him. And what about King Nebuchadnezzar, who was told by Daniel that God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the, of the earth, and he gives them to whomever he wishes. You see, all governmental authority, whether good or bad, is ultimately from God. You say, what about uh, Germany under Hitler or the Soviet Union under Stalin? Did God grant their authority as well? Yes. Yes. All power that has ever existed was ordained by God for wise and holy purposes, who not only appoints the particular form of government, but he also appoints the individual rulers as well. And that's ultimately why, as Christians, we should all be subject to government, because government was ordained by God. And that brings us to our second point, which is, we should be subject to government because of the fear of judgment. We should be subject to government because of the fear of judgment. Look at verses two through four. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So Paul has already told us that human government was established by God. And if that's the case, then the means, that means that all human government has behind it the very authority of God himself, who has set that government, that particular government in place. Therefore, anyone who resists that authority resists the authority of God himself. That's simple. And also, all who do so, Paul says, will receive judgment. Now, the word judgment here can also mean punishment. And so it's talking here not only about punishment from God, but also about punishment from human authorities as well. Because God has given the government the right to punish those who do evil. And notice the particular kind of punishment that Paul mentions here in verse 4. There he says, if you do wrong, be afraid, for he, that is the ruler or authority figure, does not bear the sword in vain. Now, what do you do with a sword? Well, you certainly don't butter bread with it, right? You see, Paul here is referring to capital punishment, the death penalty for certain crimes that a person commits. Okay, you might be wondering now, so government was established by God and God has the right to inflict the death penalty, but why was it even necessary in the first place? Isn't the death penalty inhumane? Well, I believe that the Bible answers both of these questions indirectly in the book of Genesis. You might remember that before the fall of Adam, there was no need for any government because up until that point, sin had not entered the world. You might also remember that shortly after the fall, God placed cherubim at the entrance of the Garden of Eden. And then he placed something interesting in their hands. What was it? Well, curiously, it was a flaming sword. 
flash back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So Adam was forbidden from ever entering the garden again upon pain of death by a sword, just like the one mentioned in our passage today, right? So after sin entered the world, God established capital punishment that was to be carried out by angelic authority at the beginning. And then in his covenant with Noah, after the flood, God established capital punishment that was to be carried out by human authority for the particular crime of murder. Remember Genesis chapter 9, referring to all human life, God says, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from every man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God created man in his very own image. In other words, if a person unjustly takes someone's life, God is telling Noah that he himself will see to it personally, in providence, that the murderer's life is also taken. And the way that he usually does that is through rulers or authority figures who are his avengers of wrath on earth. And what this is saying is that human life is so very sacred that anyone who takes a life unjustly deserves to forfeit his or her very own because human beings are created in the image of God. Now, someone might argue that according to research, the death penalty has already been proven to be ineffective as a deterrent for crime. But that's not completely true because it certainly deters the offender from ever committing another crime again. Now, it's important to point out that the right to take life has only been granted by leg to legitimate authority, right? And never to an individual who is looking for or seeking out personal revenge. And this is what Jesus was referring to when Peter drew a harvest sword and cut the uh, high priest's servant's ear. And Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place. Why? Because all who take up the sword for revenge or vigilante purposes will also die by the sword. So God has granted government authority and them alone the right to take human life if necessary. In fact, in verse 4, Paul even says that the government functions as a minister of God, whose task it is to serve God by rewarding those who do good and punishing those who do evil. And ordinarily, even in the most secular and irreligious governments, they will have laws against uh, righteousness and laws to punish wickedness, for the most part. So that a Christian who is seeking to do good in that kind of environment need not live his or her life in the fear of government. So as Christians, we should seek to be model citizens, right? For the glory of God, that we might live in peace with all people and that we might bring people to Christ through our actions. And I think it's important, important to point out that evangelism and not necessarily political power is the primary means of addressing the world's problems. Because there's a difference between passing laws that are righteous and having people obey them from the heart. You may remember that in the Old Testament, all that the laws that God gave the people of Israel and commanded them to keep, all of those laws were good, holy, and righteous laws. The problem was that the laws themselves had no power within them to change the human heart, which was sinful and corrupt 
And so as sinners, we need a heart change that can only be brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit who works in and through the faithful proclamation of the gospel message. And so evangelism and not politics provides the ultimate answer for all of the world's problems that are a direct result of sin in the heart of human beings. And this is so very important for us because if we forget this fact and we, we can fall into the trap of promoting the social gospel, right? Which is the gospel that liberal theologians teach and proclaim where issues like social justice become more important to us than the gospel itself. And we don't want to do that because the Bible says that all of the world's problems stems from sin in the heart. And the only real solution is to, is to see people brought into a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel. Now, I know that some of you are currently working in the political arena and are very passionate about changing laws that are unjust and helping to bring aid to those who are oppressed. And that is absolutely awesome. As Christians, we should seek to serve God faithfully whatever capacity that he's placed us, because the gospel ministers to the whole person. And so we should definitely work and pray for the establishment of righteous laws in society. In fact, in a book titled Christian Ethics, Rain Grudem points out how Christians have positively impacted governments throughout world history. Listen to what he says. Some of these changes include things like outlawing abortion, child abandonment, instituting humane prison reforms, stopping human sacrifice, granting property rights and other protections to women, banning polygamy and advancing the idea of compulsory education for children in Europe, as well as abolishing slavery. You see, Christians have done all of these things and have taken part in all of these activities. So historically, Christians have always worked to find a healthy balance between preaching the gospel message and influencing culture through promoting just and righteous laws. In fact, it's oftentimes through Christian efforts to promote social justice for the oppressed that God will open the door for all of us to proclaim the gospel message to other people. So definitely serve God faithfully in whatever capacity that he's placed you in life. Whatever he has called you to do, whatever your heart desires, serve God faithfully. Now along those lines of promoting uh, just and righteous laws, I'll also say just in passing that while the gospel is our primary concern, I also think it's important that when we vote, we should definitely seek to elect officials who will approve laws and appoint judges who are in line with the Christian faith, who embrace the Christian values, if at all possible, because God has ordained that righteous laws protect a society. And so as Christians, we should be subject to government because government is ordained by God. We should be subject to government because of the fear of judgment. And finally, we should be subject to government for consciousness sake. Look at verse five with me. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So here Paul says that we should be subject to government not only because we fear God's wrath in the form of human punishment if we break the law, but also for the sake of our consciences. Now, what exactly is the conscience and how does it work? Well, the human conscience is a God-given 
internal faculty that helps us to determine right from wrong. It functions in us sort of like a moral compass, right? And it's something that all human beings have and not just Christians. Some people's consciences may be stronger than others. And sometimes the conscience can become hardened because of sin. And so we should never just assume that everything that our conscience tells us is just and right and good. We should always check our consciences and have them regulated by the word of God. So what Paul is telling us is that having a clear conscience before God should motivate us to be subject to authority as Christians, right? We should obey authority because we fear God and want to please him from our hearts. And that's far different from mere outward obedience, right? Think about it. With outward obedience, a person may obey the speed limit because they're afraid that if they don't, if they do, if they don't, they might get caught and have to pay an expensive ticket. With inward obedience, however, you obey the speed limit because you want to have a clear conscience before God who you know is present with you and concerned about your attitude and behavior as you are driving. So as Christians, we ought to obey not out of the fear of getting caught, but we obey because we love God and want to please him from our hearts. You know, when I was a teenager, my good friend Jermaine Reynolds once pulled me aside and said, hey, Joe, I want to ask you something. And then, uh, is it, a, it a, is it against the law to steal? And I go, what? What are you talking about, man? Of course it's against the law to steal. And he said, no, no, it's not. And I go, I don't understand what you're talking about. And then he looks at me intently and he says, I'm telling you, it's not against the law to steal. And then he says, stealing is only illegal if you get caught. In other words, if you steal and get away with it, and you're lucky enough not to get caught or arrested, then you haven't broken any laws. <laughs> now, I, I have to admit at that time that I wasn't sophisticated enough in my reasoning skills to provide a counter argument to Jermaine's proposition, even though I knew in my heart that he was using faulty logic at best. But after becoming a Christian, I realized that my friend was totally ignoring the fact that not only do human beings have a conscience that tells them right from wrong, but there's also a God who established the very law against stealing that Jermaine was so very nonchalantly referring to. So even if a person steals and gets away with it from a human perspective, he is still guilty and accountable to God who sees everything that he does and will one day punish him for it. And so Paul is telling us as Christians to be subject to authority so that we can have a clear conscience before God. And so for this reason, Paul tells us in verses six and seven to pay taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. In short, Paul is describing Christian people as those who are upright and truthful in their dealings with other people and the government. And this includes paying our taxes and revenue, as well as giving respect and honor to those who are in authority over us. Overall, as Christians, our lives should be characterized by obedience to the law as much as possible. But that doesn't mean we should obey authority in everything without exception. Because when the government demands that we do something that God himself forbids us to do, we must humbly, 
disobey their authority. In fact, there are several illustrations in the Bible where Christians chose to obey God rather than men. You might remember the story of the Hebrew midwives in Egypt, how they were commanded by Pharaoh to kill all the male Hebrew children that were born to Hebrew families. But the Bible tells us that the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And then we're told that God dealt kindly with the midwives because they feared him. So he gave them families. Again, in the book of Acts, Peter and John were commanded not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus by the religious leaders. But listen to how Peter and John respond. They said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. You see, in both cases, when believers were ordered to break a direct command of God, they were obligated to disobey any and all human authority. And the same is true for you and me as well. Now, in closing, I just want to say that submission in the Bible comes from a proper spirit or attitude in the person, and that leads to his or her obedience. It recognizes the authority over us to whom we're obliged to honor and respect. That authority comes from God, and so we recognize that. And therefore, if we find ourselves in a situation where we must disobey authority, we can and do, should do so in humble, submissive spirit. You must remember that Jesus Christ not only suffered the death that we deserve for us on the cross, but he did so with a proper spirit and attitude of submission to God. And this was ultimately why God accepted his obedience. As Christians, we owe our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, and our thankfulness and gratitude to him should be the very basis of our submission to all authority on earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this message, Lord. We live in a time when it is difficult, Lord, to obey authority because all the authority that we see around us seems to be hostile to the gospel message. But we pray, Lord, that you would give us a submissive spirit and help us, Lord, to submit to authority so that we could put to shame those who do evil and create an opportunity, Lord, where the gospel can be proclaimed in and through our lives and through the message that we speak. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.